Hello, dear listeners. This is Zach Berger for Sholem's Bias, my podcast about things that interest me. We had a number of great guests in the past season, which was in 2016. Now it's 2017, and a lot of things are different. Um, one of the things that isn't different, hopefully, or perhaps, or maybe certainly, is the human need for poetry and translation among various kinds of poetry and thinking about those. And so I have a fascinating person to chat with today. This is Alexander Dikau, who is an assistant professor at Virginia Tech. He is a poet and translator um, writing in both English and French and also a, a critic of both literatures. Um, so thank you very much, Alexander, for joining us. And thanks very much for the invitation, Zach. So I have to say my it's, it's always delightful to meet somebody that, that it occupies not exactly the same space, but a similar space in, in, that, in writing in two languages. And I was trying to think, well, the first question I'm going to ask him is going to come off as really annoying because I get that question. I roll my eyes all the time. But it is a, it's sort of a legitimate question, and that is, it's like this, the Thomas Nagel, what, what, what is it like to be a bat question? Like, what is it like for you to write in English and in French and navigate between them? And yeah, maybe I'll start with that. Okay, um, it's rather nice uh, when I'm when I feel like writing in French, I write in French. When I feel like writing in English, I write in English. Uh, and it's sort of all uh, additional dimensions in language to work with. Uh, it's like being able to paint and sculpt rather than just paint. Uh, you get to experiment with. Uh, with a different mode of your of your medium, uh, I think it's I think it's a, an excellent gift. I wish more people would write in multiple languages. It seems like a lot of writers are, are somewhat hesitant to write in their second language. I don't really understand that. I think uh, it's it's somewhat liberating uh, to write in a second language because you don't have the weight of uh, commonplaces and uh, the weight of usage. Uh, bogging you down as you create. You can create sort of free from certain kinds of constraints uh, that are built into having a native language. So, so French is your second language, is that right? That's right. And 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 you don't feel so clearly. You don't feel as a poet that you know I, I'm not writing. I, I don't have the the tether to the day well you you are saying you don't have the tether to the daily language and that that is a, that is a freeing thing yeah i mean uh, to a certain extent so i i learned french when i was 12 uh, my dad took the family abroad to uh to france for a year and i learned french at that point and taught myself to read later on really uh on my own um so i do have some of that uh some of that weight but i think compared to the, uh, my, my feelings about the resonances of words in English, uh, it's less of a burden in French. I have more freedom, I think, in French than I do in English to some extent, at least with regard to uh, my position with regard to how the language is used colloquially, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And is it a particular difficulty to translate between registers from English to French or vice versa from a higher to a lower register or is that not a difficulty that you come across that's not a difficulty that I've that I've really grappled with I think I learned early enough 
showed that linguistic register is something that I'm very sensitive to in French. I don't, I don't think I have a particular struggle rendering that sort of thing. Um, translation is very difficult for me to theorize uh, because it's so rooted in sort of the, the, the accidents of practice. Uh, so the difficulties I come across, I have a little difficulty seeing clearly uh, what the typical difficulties I have are. Uh, all I know is that as I'm translating a text, I'm running into a passage that's that's difficult for X, Y, and Z reason. But I, I don't see much in the way of recurrences uh, mm -hmm. as to what's difficult or what's easy to translate. So, and in your critical work, you, you do do you write on um, on translation theory, not not particularly, is that right? My impression is from looking, looking at your, your work, that's not a subject that you write about on a, uh, frequently, or maybe I'm incorrect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say frequently. Uh, I have. I've written about Bonnefoy, a, a contemporary French poet who just passed away this last year. Um, I've written about his translation theory, which I disagree with a great deal in the political essay about this in substance. I've written an article on uh, reading as translation uh, on on some poems by Max Echo. I've written, um, I think, one other thing about translation. I can't remember exactly what it is. So I had written about translation before, uh, but I wouldn't call myself a specialist of translation studies uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm very much a practitioner, practitioner of, of translation as opposed to a theorist. Yeah, so I, 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 I can't say I read an awful lot of translation theory, but I read a bit, and, and I concur with maybe what, what, you, what you were saying um, in passing, is that it doesn't, it doesn't help in practice, not that it's meant to. I mean, it's not meant to be. I, I, I understand correctly that criticism is not meant to be a cookbook, but um, to me, the, the theorization, I think, is interesting in its own right, but doesn't illuminate my own practice. Um, Maybe if I had more, more distance on my own translation, I would understand better the interplay, interplay between theory and practice, but I don't have that yet. I, f I feel like translation theory has a tendency to address itself to sort of broader issues like uh, sociological issues or political or ideological issues uh, that have to do with, you know, uh, transnationality or things like that, uh, or, you know, the relationship between cultures, uh, these kinds of issues, rather than dealing with the actual practice of translation directly, uh, and that, you know, that's that's probably because I haven't been exposed to enough translation theory, yes. and particularly I haven't been exposed to translation theory that does deal directly with with practice. Uh, partly because it's it gets very technical, uh, and it's not a it's not a, a dimension of the field that I felt particularly drawn to. Mm -hmm. So that may have something to do with it. I. So I know that you translate from French to English. Do you translate from English to French as well? I do. As a matter of fact, the first thing that I translated from English to French was uh, Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, which is how I found out about your work. Oh, that's uh, great. I know you've, you've translated Dr. Seuss into Yiddish, and so uh, a cousin of mine mentioned that he had uh, discovered that you had translated Dr. Seuss into Yiddish. So I, uh, I discovered your work that way. Uh, and uh, and had, had done this translation of the Lorax, which unfortunately is still not published because Seuss Enterprises is very uh, careful about how they launch uh, Dr. Seuss in other languages in other countries. And the, pub the only publisher right now who's doing Dr. Seuss uh, is the Nouvelle Absida in Paris. Uh, and I, 
approach them about translation. For the moment, it hasn't uh, it hasn't worked out because Doctor uh, because Suicide Enterprises wants to have a single translator uh, translating coherently across the books. Uh, and since I'm a different translator, I probably have a different style than the translator that they're working with. Oh, interesting. Uh huh. I mean, that's I guess the downside of working with a language that has a bit more of a reading public than Yiddish does. Um, that there's concern about stylistic homogeneity, for example. Yeah, uh, it's very, very difficult to translate Seuss into French. It's probably the most difficult translation project I've undertaken. Yeah, and so yeah, people people ask me about the Yiddish versions of Seuss. Like, you know, what 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 was it like? And it was it was the I think it, it, the act wasn't difficult, but the register was is is not the same. That is, it's a, a slightly higher level, and the vocabulary is slightly larger because obviously Seuss was writing with limited vocabulary for for a certain audience, and the translate it changes that. So, mm-hmm. uh, the, the main problem with French is that French does not have a tonic accentuation system. Uh, so there's there are accents of syntactic groups. Uh, but those accents are mobile depending on the order of the words. Uh, whereas in English, we have accents on particular, you know, multisyllabic words will have accents in particular places. Right. That's not the case in French. So to render the kind of sing-songy rhythms you get in Dr. Seuss uh, takes a lot of acrobatics in French. That that reminds me of. I don't I don't think about that distinction that often because I you know I don't I don't read enough prosody. I, I know I should, but that reminds me of. I was recently reading um, uh, Benjamin Harshov's uh, anthology of his work on Hebrew prosody, and the fact mm-hmm. that Hebrew in its history has has had both tendencies, right? Both a tonic system um, and 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 whatever the other kind is called. Um, but it's been influenced by both, you know, both the Russian traditions and the French traditions and the Yiddish traditions. Um, so, I, so that makes me want to go back and look at the Hebrew Seuss translations and see what they do. That would be very interesting. I think you know there's a, there might be a paper in that. As a matter of fact, <laughs> translating Dr. Seuss from you know from uh, in, in Yiddish, French, and, uh, and Hebrew would be a very interesting project. Yeah. So so you were in Israel this past year. I was. I was in Israel in in, uh, in the spring, and my wife uh, went a Fulbright to do uh, fluid dynamics over there on corals and work with the with the guy at the Technion, and uh, I was along for the ride. And uh, you know, uh, occupied myself with my own work, did more time there, and uh, it was great fun. That's great. So did you? So, um, what is your Hebrew reading practice like now? Are you you're still learning the language? You're, I, I, I saw in an interview that you're you're a lover of Amachai, as 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 am I. Um, are there other writers mm-hmm. that have attracted your attention, or what's what's your engagement like with Hebrew these days? Well, I, I certainly still uh, still read Hebrew. Reasonably regularly, I'm working on Baba Metzia with some uh, with some friends with a Chagrusa and uh, and a rabbi, and uh, and that's been great fun. So I get exposed to Hebrew fairly fairly regularly, um, but I'm very much still a beginner uh, linguistically. So you know I have I would struggle very much to have you know to hold a proper conversation in Hebrew, even if uh, my reading is probably better than my speaking. Uh, at Ulpan I was at, unfortunately, the teacher used lots and lots of English in class, oh. which doesn't help for for conversational uh, fluency, even if my reading and writing got considerably better in there. Right, right. Um, so, so tell me. So you you uh, write in both languages, and your own work 
that your own published work is is often bilingual. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that uh, how do you, do you, do you feel the need to also have and and you, I think you do have right unilingual works? Uh, or do you feel like there's something there's a, there's a need to balance out the bi- the bilingual works with something only in English or only in French, or is that not a need that you feel? Uh, it sort of depends on the work. Um, so right now I have a manuscript which I have a version of in English and a version of in French, um, and I wanted to get those published separately because I didn't want to repeat the gesture of having a bilingual book. My first book, book uh, Calumbot, came out in Paris in 2008, and uh, and I didn't want to repeat that gesture. I wanted to show that the, the works could stand up on their own in a single language as well. Um, but there's another work that I just came out with in French called L'Absolue Curieuse, which uh, which is strictly in French, and I simply haven't been able to translate it into English. I, I don't think it's, for me, a translatable book. Uh, so that one has gone has gone on very much untranslated and will remain in French, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you find a more, I guess this is a, uh, maybe too broad a question, but do, do you find a more appreciative audience for your work in in francophone countries or or, or, in, or in English-speaking countries? In francophone countries, interestingly, uh, I, th- I think that my cultural references, I, so I think cultural references, uh, literary cultural references, form a great deal in our high school years and just afterwards. Uh, at least that was that was my case. So my poetic points of reference, you know, when someone says Elliot to me, I say Apollinaire. Uh, you know, I don't, I right. don't know how to how my practice intersects with the American tradition very well. Uh, my, my cultural references tend to be uh, French, uh, with a few exceptions. And uh, as a result of that, I think uh, my, what I'm doing makes more sense in French, it makes more sense in a, in a, in a Francophone context, because uh, I've had much more generous reception there than I have in the U.S. Um, but part of that is mysterious. Uh, you know, I think it has something to do with points of reference and also just makes no sense to me, and I really don't know why it happens. That's, fa- that's fascinating. I mean, also, right, so there's there's the question of reception as a bilingual poet, and then there's the question of reception as a poet, qua poet, right? And I would imagine, right. my, my stereotype is that the figure of the poet is still more central to European culture than it is to American culture, broadly speaking, but I don't know, you know, never, you know, never having been in Europe or a European setting as a poet, really. But is, it, is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Um, I think I think the poet has kept a little bit more of its of its aura yeah. uh, in in France than it than it has in the U.S. Um, as with most things, France is about ten years behind the U.S., which means uh, poetry has been constantly in crisis for the past thirty forty years in France, <laughs> and uh-huh. is uh, entering what a lot of people consider perpetually to be its its uh, its total demise. Um, and it's about ten years behind. U.S. Uh, with regard to that demise, so I would imagine they'll start having lots of poetry contests at the publishers that, uh, <laughs> right, right. that you know allow publishers to no longer have to promote the books because they've already made back all the money on the contest fees, right? Uh, and stuff like that in France, they don't have that yet, uh, and they do in the U.S. Uh, so I'd imagine that's on its way. Yeah, right. And they'll, they'll need a self-parodic poet like Jim Burrow, and they'll need a number of essays in their version of the New Yorker about how people, everyone hates hates poetry, and it's dead, right? Um, That's right. Some some guy will come out with the uh, 
the, that little book by uh, Ben Lerner, Why I Hate Poetry or whatever. Right. Called. Did you did you read to poetry? Did you read that? So yeah, someone will come out with that in yeah. ten years in France. Right. Later. Right. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I, I I'm not I don't follow French politics closely, but I know there's a rightward trend, at least if one follows the, the current you know, the current electoral politics in France from a distance. And I don't know if that goes along with a different attitude towards poetry or an attitude towards a different sort of poetry. Um, I don't know if that's the case. That's actually a particularly interesting question because uh, there was a guy who came out with a book very recently called La Haine, La Haine de la Literature, or the Hatred of Literature, a uh, very, um, very important scholar named William Marx. And he talks about uh, he, this, this book was in part spurred by a number of remarks by Sarkozy that it was sadistic to, to make French uh, high school students work on La Princesse de Clèves and you know great works of literature because it was such it was such torment to, to you know to, to inflict on these on these young students. Wow. Um, uh-huh. Which was clearly informed by his personal experience of trying to write about La Princesse de Clèves when he was in high school. <laughs> right. uh, so there's been a discourse in France for the last couple of years about precisely that, about the relation between politics and, uh, and, and literature, and the fact that politicians seem to, seem to be very hostile to literary study and, and to the humanities in general. Uh, so that seems to be very much on the French radar right now. Uh, you know, the, the rightward trend seems to be associated with a certain kind of anti-intellectualism, uh, which, uh, uh, which would explain why politicians are sort of overtly taking this anti-literary kind of stance. Um, of course, I don't. I should add that I have not read in its entirety the, the book by Marx, so uh, I can only I can only recommend it as uh, it, it's gotten a lot of press and appears to be a, a very interesting read. So I'll recommend it uh, and add the caveat that uh, I prob- I'm probably not representing his views in a, in a very full or, or nuanced way. Right. I uh, and I I'm trying to think of an equivalent. Not that I've now, now hearing it from you the first time, second or third hand, but I'm trying to think of an equivalent position taken or equivalent uh, role played by a book in the U.S. sphere about the li- relation between literature and politics. And of course, I mean that literature is always there, but uh, it, its centrality in the American public sphere is probably something else or maybe lessened. Right? I can't. The intel- anti-intellectualism is usually taken for granted. And if one speaks of given literary works, it's often in the, the context of either banning them or reading versus not reading them, not that, that they would, it, it would be suffering to read them. <laughs> so that, that's an interesting, right. um, uh, you know. It, uh, um, could, I, could I ask you to read some of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll read something from, uh, from my latest collection. If, if, uh, yeah, could you mind, could you say the one that's still looking for a publisher? Yeah, Hello, could, publishers out there, in, in <laughs> case you're on, in case you're listening. <laughs> okay, so I'll I'll read one uh, that is uh, that was in, inspired in part by um, our favorite character on the news lately. Yes, uh, it's called "To a Politician." Your cellophane disguised for a tongue furiously unbefits the even knavest of these podium-fisted Catalines I hate, whose dim broadcasts encrust with craven adjectives and slick nouns, whose paramount pronouncements weighty grovel fresh veneers each victim eye, who gape and crave at limp wealth, 
puppets of their own slanted lip and their thin speech as cheap as its callous stakes are rootless, our brittle faith, our breath, the truth. That has a lot of that has a lot of Elliot in it. Actually, speaking of Elliot, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just hearing it. Um, that that word was Catalines. What was that word in the first the first th- third line first line? Yeah, Cataline. Cataline was a was a politician that uh, um, uh, what's his name uh, the famous orator Cicero. Pardon me. Cicero wrote uh, a, a book called The Conjuration de Cataline de Catalina. Um, in French, which I'm not exactly sure uh, what it's called in English. I think it's called the the, uh, the Catalan conspiracy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was which was a, a speech designed to show that Catalan was this horrible guy who was trying to take over Rome, and that he should be thrown out and banished forever. Uh, and uh, so Catalan is sort of the the, the the archetype here for the for the evil politician. It's a. It's got a lot of fascinating images in quick succession. Um, so maybe when we uh, when we're done, you can after, afterwards, you, you don't if you don't mind sending me. Uh, well, depending on how comfortable you are and whether the poem has been pu- published elsewhere, but sending me the words. Um, oh yeah, yeah, please do. And is that that poem? And so this collection is this uh, bilingual or in English or? So this one exists in English and in French, uh-huh. uh, and I've submitted it as a monolingual manuscript, except to one place. Uh, uh, um, Lavender Inc. has a special collection uh, called Dialogos, uh, which is interested potentially in, in bilingual works and cross-lingual works. Uh, so I did I did uh, send it to send both to them, uh, but other than that, it's been it's been submitted as a monolingual uh, manuscript. And how did you how did you organize it? What was your because one of the things that I, people always talk about in constructing books and submitting manuscripts is is the organizing principle. Do you feel like you had one for this? Uh, yeah. Well, it starts. It's called Appetites, and it starts with a bunch of poems devoted to food, uh, and it ends with a number of poems that are uh, either inspired by liturgy or uh, or are religious in nature. Uh, so it sort of moves from uh, from base appetites upward, if you like. Uh, in between, there's there's sort of all all different registers and uh, uh, and and developments, and it's it's much more chaotic in the middle than it is at the beginning and the end, uh, as I wanted to sort of include uh, a broad enough scope of what I do in the in the middle of the manuscript. Is is there um, is there a way in which um, well, I'm going to say this another way. What um, do you feel isolated at Virginia Tech writing French poetry, or is it? Is does academia provide a a, a supportive environment for you, or is it that you you try to travel frequently to to, to francophone locales? How does how does that work for you? Uh, it is fairly isolating to be at Virginia Tech. Um, I found the, uh, the English department here has their own thing going on, and they don't seem particularly interested. To be honest, that there's a there's a francophone poet around, um, and uh, so I've, I've been very little in touch with, uh, with the English department here, and really rely on uh, you know for readings and things. They almost always happen in France. I, I've been invited, I think, to one reading in the U.S. Uh, a long time ago. Um, and uh, haven't had many occasions to read in, in English. I, I jump at the opportunity when I have them, even for open mics, which are somewhat 
Right. So I've done that. In, uh, I've done that at, uh, at the bookstore here uh, on one or two occasions. Um, but it's been it's been hard to find an audience. That, you know, uh, I do funny things with syntax, and I think that sort of the uh, kind of grammarian poetry is, is a little bit foreign to the American scene right now. Uh, so people sort of wonder, wonder what it is I'm up to when I give readings. Yeah, right, and you, and, you, and you also like uh, concrete poetry. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So that there's more of an audience for in the U.S., but I once submitted some pieces to a um, uh, to an anthology, a Bispo anthology, and they thought the pieces were really interesting, but they didn't fit with those either because they still demanded the kind of reading as opposed to a seeing uh, of, of the work, um, even though they were concrete in nature and involved some, some plenty of visual play, uh, there were still poems to be read, uh, which I think was not really quite what they were going for in that anthology. So even in concrete poetry, I've not necessarily met with a very clear reception of, of that work in the U.S. Sometimes it's frustrating that even with even in poetry, there are there are dogmas and 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 boxes one is supposed to be in and and or not be in. Um, can, in closing, could I could I prevail upon you for a couple of recommendations? If you had to, if you had to recommend a, a poet in English that you're reading and a poet in French to to our listeners, that you would that you would recommend? Yeah, sure. And then after that, if you want, I can read a I can read another text. Maybe one. Yeah, uh, yeah, that'd be great. That's a, yeah, okay. Um, I would say uh, so. One of my favorite poets working in English right now is a is a young fellow named Toby Altman. Uh, who's working in Chicago and uh, has an amazing knack for blending uh, some of the sort of postmodern stuff that goes on with uh, this remarkably almost Shakespearean uh, rhythmic density in his work that I think is really fascinating. Uh, and I've, I haven't come across anything quite like it. He does a lot of uh, playwriting, but the plays are extremely, extremely dense and really hold up well uh, on the page. Uh, as well just for reading them. He's got one coming out called uh, Arcadia, Indiana, uh, from a small press out of Chicago. I believe it's out of Chicago. Um, so keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. Um, uh, in French, I would say uh, a recent discovery um, hmm, might be a guy named Philippe Blanchon, whose work seems very intriguing to me. I haven't read a lot of it yet, but it looks very interesting to me, and it's very, uh, very dense with cultural allusions uh, and dialogues with a lot of other literary works, which I, which, which I tend to find interesting. Um, so those, that would be one recommendation in English, one recommendation in French, although if I thought about it, I'm sure I could come up with some others. That was a great, that was a great, yeah. Please, please read something else for us. Okay, let's see here. Uh, to decide which one is the tricky part. I think I'll try this one called Galaxy. Measureless and vacant husks veneer along the pale gaps, kissing the smooth-lit kernels far across the hesitation contours. Where cycles dip, ebbing forth aromas of nectar vicinities, all gleamed among their dim stretchings. Remote surroundments hint around lucid cusps, and milk blinkings swerve over grooved vastnesses, whose lofty gazes, empty to the brim, resound. 
fine-spun legions of distant stone pivot within strange rings and innocent strains swivel endless and lilt like hearts wept upon the rings of far-fetched moats tingling their ancient obads. Are you a reader of A.R. Ammons? Uh, I have read some A.R. Ammons. My wife showed me a wonderful poem by A.R. Ammons uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, but I haven't read him in depth. I, I gather I should. Well, that, that poem reminds me very much, I mean, you might know that Ammons, um, and I'm, I'm blanking right now, but I think had a scientific education of some detail. <laughs> and he he has several long poems about features of the natural world. Um, and the way in which your gaze in this poem is it's sort of, it's fractal, I think. If mm -hmm. I, uh, it's at it's various dimensions and takes into account light and shadow and edge. It's very, very Ammons-like to me. Uh, and I mean, as a compliment, because Ammons is one of my favorites. And, uh, and I like the way in which, yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a plastic or visual piece looking at various dimensions. So that's a- Thank you. And this would be, it would be a wonderfully illustrated poem. Um, right. Yeah, I think so too. That would be nice to see a, a, yeah. a painter take a stab at it. Right. We can we can speak if we, you know since we already spoke out into the ether to the small publishers, we can also speak to the visual artists. Um, That's right. Exactly. Well, right. do do you have a, a French version of that? I do have a French version of that. Should I read the French version? Yes, please. I can I can only I can only um, enjoy it more or less phonically, but um, other people might might benefit in other ways too. Sure, sure. Yes, I have a lot of passive enjoyment of French through, you know, pretty good knowledge of Spanish, and I can read somewhat, but poetry is very much a voyage of my ear and, and a dictionary. Um, and Google Translate can be very helpful. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed it can. Okay. Almost there. Great. No, that's okay. No, I, I didn't. I didn't uh, tee you up. So. Okay, here we are. Galaxy. D'incommensurables écorces enduisent selon les fêtes espacées, et frémissant le semi d'éclairage floue les ourlets tout loin. Arômes qu'émane un jusant cousu d'oubli. Luisez vos affleurements sourds et vos proches nectars. Des avant-preuves telles, en glissant partout les oreilles lucides, où des clins de lait dérapent pendant des éloignements vastes, dont les grands regards vides à rabord résonnent. Des légions respirées en pierres lointaines pivotent dans des cerclages et des airs d'innocence. Louvois des vibrements comme des cœurs pleurés dessus les anneaux d'improbables noyaux frissonnant d'antiques aubades. There we go. Thank you. That's um. It has a symbolic richness about it, at least phonetically. I can say that. Um, and I, that's another thing I would like to see on the page: the, the French and the English versions. So thank you very much for 
for your reading and for your thoughts. Um, and, uh, and I wish you all the best. And if you're ever in Baltimore, um, we should organize a reading. Absolutely. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Zach. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye.